Hi, Noga. Hi, Serge. So we're talking about the embodied mind, but maybe uh, it makes sense to also talk about the context in which it is embodied and what's, what's the setting here? The setting is uh, an apartment in Florence in Italy uh, and where there's a huge heat wave going on here and most of Western Europe. And so I'm feeling the heat and finding it rather hard to concentrate. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm in the New York City area and, uh, you know, usually this time of year is very hot, but today is not. It's actually rather cool, cloudy, rainy. So very, very different setting. And of course. And of course, different state of mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are yeah, meteorophilic creatures. The weather affects us, and we know that in a very deep way, as it does yeah. any other animal. Right, right, and we don't see it on a picture. Like when you you see a movie or you see a, a video, um, you you don't see the weather unless it's outside and it's snowing or raining or whatever. But it, it, we are affected by it. Yeah, it's a, it goes to the other modalities, not sight. And so far, images don't yet give us, they can give us suggestions of other modalities, but they certainly don't give right. us the information. So we can, you, can no, you can't yet transmit touch or temperature or smell or any of those things. Not yet. There might come a time when we can, which would be very strange. Yeah, yeah. Those are probably the more direct modalities, right? They're the ones that are more, the, those by which we actually experience things much more than we thought we did yeah. for a long time. Right? Like yeah. effective touch is now studied as a very important aspect of our, of our sense of being, of our emotional and social being. Yeah, and, and so then well, now with, with the with COVID, uh, you know, when people start we're losing their sense, we're getting anosmia during COVID. Suddenly, people realize how important and central the sense of smell is to our lives, and that wasn't they weren't nobody was really aware of the extent to which it builds our experience and our sense of being. Yeah. And so this is a perfect example of something we're not aware of what we might be missing. Um, and, uh, and so right now, for instance, unless we had, uh, you know, specified what the weather is like and how it might, you know, give a hint of how it might affect us, people would not necessarily notice it. Uh, if you can't smell, you don't notice that, you know, the smell is there. You don't notice the lack of touching. So all of this, of course, has a bearing on the embodied yeah. mind is, is. Yeah, well, it's part of how we, how we experience everything. We don't, we don't realize also how these various modalities and senses are, 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 are connected to one another. One informs the other. And if it's true that if you're missing one thing, then you will. Well, no, you, you can notice that people who lost their sense of smell noticed it. Yeah. A great deal, a great deal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the mind is not just the mind. The mind is not just, um, you know, thoughts, ideas. There's all these other things going on. And sometimes it goes haywire. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, that I'm interested in, as you, as, you, as you know, this is why we, we got in touch, is, is precisely uh, the extent to which there really is a new way of looking at what we still call the mind without really knowing what we mean actually the psyche the self perhaps that is very much 
getting rid of that old Cartesian idea, the old dualist idea that the mind and the body are separate entities. And that's, there's all these new theories now that you're aware of too in psychology and neuroscience, which are taking on board entirely that, the constant, constant conversation between the brain and the other organs. And so the brain is registering uh, any, all information from sensory neurons through the vagal nerve from the other organs in the body. Uh, well, the gut being maybe the most interesting one to study now, but the heart, obviously, all, actually all organs. Sending information up to the brain, which also then sends them back down uh, in this constant loop that corresponds to really what we call what we call interoception, which is now this big field of research which I've written about and which informs yeah. a book that you contacted me about that I've just written to actually understand how the selfness of self is constructed entirely in an embodied way, and that if we we ignore that, we have a picture of even how we understand the picture that would help us understand how we, you know, even men, we call them, you know, mental illness or any of the, of those things are, are actually not understood. We really, you cannot study the brain or any kind of mental event without looking at the body because right. the brain is, part. the brain serves the body as the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio has made very clear. The brain serves the body. It's not the other way around. Right, 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 right. So, so they and 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 there is um, there is a very artificial distinction of uh, separating the the brain, which is part of the body, from the rest of the body. The mind, right. a function, an emergent function, you know, from you know the the body. So, uh, um, so we, we're at a loss for finding words for it. Um, and uh, you've paid a lot of attention to people who have difficulty with um, either sanity or functioning, um, you know, uh, and, and where they lose the ability that we have to have kind of a sense of grounding of yes. being able to, to name things and connect things. Yes. Um, and in some ways, um, you know, what does it tell us? Uh, what about, um, you know, who we are and uh, and how we function? I think, well, we're all potential patients and I think all of us have moments of fragility, moments where we feel disconnected. I think everyone has even small moments of what we call you know, depersonalization or derealization, since that we're not quite entirely at the center of our own emotional experience. It doesn't take much for that to happen. Uh, and I think, I think a lot of people have this, these, these sh shifts in their selfhood uh, without necessarily noticing it, where things become pathological, when you're on that continuum, you have that sh tipping into pathology. I think the best way to define pathology be interesting to hear your thought on this is when your when difficulties start actually start really interfering with your daily life and your ability to live normally with others and actually one of the things that i occurred to me was i was writing which i wrote in the book and i and i think it's really important i think a lot of psychological issues mostly mental illness have correspond to a, a disconnect from time of others because we share temporality, um, 
By the way, uh, we just got a technical thing of your, okay, yeah, your, your image has appeared. Somebody was just actually uh, right, calling me, I'm sorry. Um, I'm using the phone because the computer wasn't working, was behaving pathologically mm -hmm. uh, beyond function. So time for it to see a doctor. Um, so uh, those analogies we need to the technology in ourselves, it's historical. We've always compared ourselves to whatever technology we have. So actually just a little aparte. You know, comparing the mind to the computer is, is silly. It's not actually how it works. Right, right, right. right. So, so in some ways, this is great because, um, the, you know, you were launched into uh, something that made sense. And yes. then it was interrupted. Yes, that's uh, right. Now I've lost my sense. And so, so how do we deal with that? You know, like yes. in some way uh, we could, you know, just kind of, okay, pretend it's not happened. But what yeah. I'm curious about so, is what happens when we notice it happens. Yeah, and, so all sorts and, of things would happen, right? If I were in a, being, a, in a, being tested, so the skin conductions would have increased. There's a, there's a bit of a, of, of a bit of, you know, a moment of the heartbeat extreme, a bit of anxiety happened. And then at the same time, Cognitively, I'm thinking, oh, how are we going to recuperate this? How are we going to use this? And it happened right. very fast. This is how we right. normally, at our best, at our best, even in the heat, we try to function in this way. <laughs> but actually, yeah, I mean, the thought really was about this, right? This continuum between normality and, and, and yeah. pathology. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, interruption. Interruption in the time of others. That's interesting. It came just at this moment. And it's a really, I think it's so important that we share each other's time. Mm -hmm. in society in our, our social embodied social beings we are in each other's times when when something goes wrong when we're very when real like clinical depression or, or or severe case of personality disorders or whatever we're not in the same timeline or indeed dementia as was happening with my mother as i spoke, as i wrote about in the book yeah. um when time is no longer in in the same and sharing the time of others and i think that's really that's, I think, maybe also the kind of the point, right, of the very profound. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it reminds me of how, you know, in science fiction stories, uh, that concept of there's a break in the space-time continuum or something like this, yes. as a reader, you don't really necessarily understand, you know, the, uh, physic the physicality of it. But that concept is maybe kind of what's happening uh, when yep. there's a break in encounters when we're not in the same space-time continuum. Yeah, it's, it's exactly true. And I think we're not really aware of how, I mean, how constructed and how fragile really the continuum is. I think it's, it's really important. And I, and I I think it's, we we coast a lot of the time. We sometimes feel we're very present in the moment. We, some, we met, you know, most of us, you know, a lot of people now, more and more people try, you know, go to, you know, try to do somatic practices like yoga most, probably most powerfully. Uh, and related practices, meditation, and so on, to try to find the center of experience, the self that is experiencing, and 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 and, and to find what what the experience of temporality is, I think, and of the self within one spatial spatial temporal moment. But it's it's easy for it to break down, and also we're also distracted a lot. And I think technology, well, in this remote yeah. technology like this, but technology is doing funny things to our sense of experience and to our phenomenology. Yeah. It is. We don't yeah. have, I don't think we figured out half of what's happening to us, to ourselves with this technology. Right, right. So, so what I want to uh, highlight a bit, what you're talking about is that sense of frailty, that sense of vulnerability, uh, not take it for granted. You know, they, in a place of being 
uh, solid or you know we want to we want to hang on to the idea that it's possible to have a stable shared reality that it's possible to be squarely facing reality but what you're you're really emphasizing is how fragile that is how easily it can go out of whack it can go out of whack although also i think it's also important to make the distinction between being something really having become completely out of whack so when is entering the state entirely of patienthood pathology which exists and the more ordinary kind of you know fleeting out of whack and again the break what is the break off point i mean um we are both fragile and also very resilient, right? I mean, the way that, that all this is constructed is extraordinary, and this is why it's so interesting to study it. I think it's also why it's both easy and difficult to study it in oneself. I think if you, you can enter the place where suddenly you can see these things happening in you, but very often we're distracted by the zillion things that we do in our, what I also called in the book, the executive life. I right. mean, the clinic, the state of pathology as such as those patients that I saw in this neuropsychiatry unit in Paris. There are, what you, a lot of them had what, you know, what neurologists would call it this executive syndrome, meaning that the executive cortex, if there is such a thing actually, well, at least with the areas of the brain that I really, partaking in our ability to plan, to control, to make sense of in a, in a kind of high, higher cognitive functions. Then well, that was out of whack. And so these people were in a sense, no longer in the world of what I, you know, was playing with the words executive diary, you know, basically our daily programmed life of capability, capacity, and of the various myriad crises that can go within that. But these people were on the very other side of that. They weren't capable even of having the ordinary crisis. They were way beyond that which is very painful. And that area, that, that world is painful. And it's, it is different from the more ordinary, though sometimes equally painful, uh, mal-être, you know, the difficulty of being that so many people face yeah. every day. Yeah. But the different so there's, categories. So there's a big difference between losing the capacity to have an executive function uh, and that general malaise of, you know, not being quite not being quite right in our skin or not being quite right in the world or something like that. Uh, so, but both are really discomforting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Though I think that it's what's so important also to recognize that a lot of these ordinary difficulties have been, especially I have to say in America, I think, uh, pathologized to a huge degree, uh, turned into, into problems that could be solved with a little pill <laughs> right and that's you know including grief or you know etc so those that's a problem i think um so sometimes not functioning is part of functioning for instance I think like so. grief uh and so that sense of always trying to function is in itself dysfunctional and uh, making room for not being able to function is very functional Yes, I think that's true. And I think more and more people are realizing it. I think with the COVID crisis, uh, a lot of people realized that there had to be room for malfunction, dysfunction, non-function, for letting go, uh, for just exploring the inner world, exploring the relation, immediate relational world, the families and so on, exploring what was in front of the noses. That's, it's always painful, but I think it's in a sense what, I think what the, the, this pandemic has definitely bring, bring this home. I yeah, think we're yeah. very quickly losing sight of it. I think there's another, another 
interesting feature about humans, I was just thinking about that just today, is how easily we adapt to everything, which is a plus and also a terrible problem because we adapt mm. also to the most terrible circumstances and we adapt to, well, the world's warming up. <laughs> Let's not do anything. Right, right, the Boyd frog symbol syndrome, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're very good, very, we're very, you know, in that sense, very efficient animals. Yeah. And we developed even the air conditioning, which is heating up the world faster. Right. <laughs> so it's uh, we're very strange creatures, I have to say. But I, and I, but I think all these physiological functions, which really are, once you start, you see, as I'm a humanist, I'm not a scientist, but I'm very much in dialogue with with the scientists who are doing this work, and you know. And I find it's fascinating. And it, it does now inform more and more also therapeutic practices. And um, but when you start looking and reading, I was reading even today, again, some other papers about interoception, about how this, these pathways are really constantly at work within our, our system. I think that gives you, in, in a sense, an even higher sense of how we are, and maybe even a possibility of well, a bit like with yoga, when you practice yoga, you're able to actually act directly upon these pathways and right. really uh, reconfigure your nervous system. So you realize that we're, we are malleable and we, we have that resilience, but it can, yes, break down. So it's, it's all quite complicated. But so what I like um, about where you're going with that is uh, it's a way of uh, turning the Descartes uh, thing on its head. You know, it's not I think that I am, but what really characterizes us that capacity for interoception. So if I pay attention, if I'm sensing what's yes. happening to me, then I am. That's that's what being is. That's what being is, yes. I, I yeah. sense, therefore, I am, not just I think. Right. Thinking is part of sensing anyway. That's now, you know, you can't separate reason and emotion anymore. That's right. And right. all these things are... Although the mystery of how we work, you know, this ability to exchange concepts to create these extraordinary artifacts like these cell phones or computers and books, poetry, and letters and or, poetry, yeah. art, you know, that still remains quite difficult yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. with everything else. There are ways of doing it, uh, but uh, it's still mysterious. But so maybe, again, to pursue that train of thought, uh, there's something about how uh, science of the past 50 years uh, has really shed some light on a sense of what it's like to be human and uh, emphasizing the quality of interoception. And yes. so uh, that in some way, um, you know, we had developed a, a model in which being was related to thinking. Uh, yes. And now we we have a larger model, and it's uh, it's something that's you know actually consistent with the product of thinking, with what science has done. You know, typically the thinking capacity of the brain is coming to tell us, you know, look, you're missing something if you're not paying attention to inner experience. Yes, that's a funny paradox in a way, isn't it? Isn't but it? it yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot too. It's like this is so strange. I mean, we're, we're actually able through the product even when we're reading the papers or if people are doing the research they're still putting to work they're not you know feeling in the moment in which they're doing the experiments they're doing experiments they having to collect data interpret the data and then you have to read it it's not exactly the same thing as actually living in the moment and <laughs> but, but at the same time it's it's true it's exactly what you say i, I really yeah i agree with that I mean, we are this this very science that is a product of 
well, scientific revolution and of, and of, uh, of te techniques of, of collective thinking and empirical exploration, it's not just that, really have brought to us back to our uh, phenomenological being. I mean, that's, and we are, we are turning in a way to 19th century science psychology. I mean, William James is already doing right. that. And I think we've brought yeah. him back yeah. after this hiccupy decades of, uh, you know, behaviorism and then, you know, the hardcore uh, cognitive science that was modeling indeed the brain on the computer. We've really passed now. It's almost like, okay, we don't need that really. We can actually go back inside and go back to what William James was doing or Wilhelm Wundt was doing uh, in the late 19th century. And when the scientific psychology was really being born uh, and you know, the self and emotions and so on, where really become, had become topics of scientific exploration. So we're now able to answer empirically the questions that philosophy has always asked and that we thought were stuck within, you know, their conceptual um, corners. Though yeah. I think they're not. I think that empirical science is giving us amazing answers. At the same time, these answers are always you know, you have to revise them. They're always, you know, they're never final. And the data we have is always revised as well. Right, right, right. That's what's but also the, kind of interesting. But what's happening is that um, there's a convergence with what it provides and phenomenology. Exactly, yeah. So now it's like William James and phenomenology of, of, of Merleau-Ponty in particular. Yeah. Uh, 20th century phenomenology have really converged and giving us this first person perspective being really important we can actually talk about oneself in order to talk about others. Uh, and I did that in the book too, in a sense, I talked about my experience of my mother yeah. going into dementia, to talk actually about others and to transcend this self. And, um, and then that was also the one called second person psychology, uh, which is about, is really seeing, actually looking at how people, studying how people are interacting and so there's a, that's really growing as well in psychology, which is really interesting because now we're looking at brains and interaction. Right. Yeah. Interacting yeah. brains is really interesting, but then you realize that's what we're doing anyway all the time. We are inherently social beings, and we were born inside the bodies, and we're developed first, and then you know, or into whole nervous system, system, not just the brain, but the whole nervous system, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and how there is, uh, you know, there's something that happens in people can in connection. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and because we are, we, you know, we are conceived within the body of someone else and we, we are never, uh, we are, we all, we, we are conceived and we, we, we exist as connected as in relation to other, to others, yeah. first to our keepers and to everybody else. So that's another aspect that has been studied, uh, is being studied a lot by, by some brilliant people uh, who are really developing these theories and showing how even our ability to adapt homeostatically to something like a very hot yep. day uh, starts off in infancy through the actions of the carer. And so even that is in a sense already for, or in our development, something that happens. We, we're not, you know, in isolation. We we're are not isolation. constantly in connection. We develop in connection. And so again, that's a loss of that sense of um, 
the one person psychology, you know, the it's first person experience, but not one person psychology. Like that's right. First person experience in the context of interaction. Yeah. And also, that's also why, in the sense that the loss of shared time, which is basically inherent in our connections, is the mark of uh, mental distress or neurological issues. Yeah, uh, yeah. We are talking about before. I mean, this is for that reason that we are in a connected in one, in a, in a, we connect each other in time. And when yeah. that, when so, that stops, so what's, what's coming up very strongly uh, as you talk is that notion of um, finding a way to share time and yeah. that finding a way to share time is a process, a kind of dance that is about being connected to our own inner experience and uh, also the connection of sensing the other in order to, um, to have, uh, uh, to construct a space where we can both inhabit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we all try to do always. And that's where the little crises can happen, but at least we take it for granted. That's what we're doing all the time. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's true. That's true. Constructing the spaces we could co we co-inhabit is, is also what makes society, what makes cities, what makes wider society. Uh, and also political life. Yeah. So it goes from the individual physiology to the political life. There's a line that extends mm -hmm. from one to the other. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. And also the other question that may arise out of all this is as to go back to this technology, to this we're calling remote technology. We're speaking remotely, but we are speaking, we are engaging in a conversation, we're listening to each other's thoughts. Um, it's the first time we meet, we're having a conversation, it's being recorded, people will watch in a different time or here. And so what is this remoteness? And also what is this technology enabling us to do? Because we are in completely we're different continents. Uh, it's all very, <laughs> very strange how we're it able is, to do this. I think we take more of this for granted now, but. It really, I think, as I said before, I don't think we've even started figuring out what the technology is. is, is that's a, that's a beautiful, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful notion there. Again, we're talking about embodied mind. And we so are. somebody who is listening to this uh, and the recording is disembodied of totally. our presence. Uh, and even and our presences were just connecting through these little faces and small screens. Right. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we're functioning. So essentially, we're functioning. In this case, you know, there is a direct feedback loop of the two of us talking. We can see each other in the little postage stamp or little parts of ourselves. And so, what's happening is we're constructing the notion of presence uh, based right. on the few clues that we have available. That's right. Yes. And, uh, and so it's nice to maybe think of it that when you're listening to this, uh, you have a, few, a bit fewer clues, uh, but you're using these clues in order to create that sense of presence, which is not That's true. Right. Yes, right. So we're definitely doing something different from what we normally do when we are in, each other, in the same room. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's part of the, yeah, for sure. Because when we are in the same room, all this, these clues, of course, all well, they're all there. There's, there's a whole bunch of sensory data that we are 
intercepting about each other, lots of it. Uh, and that we just, again, we don't even, most of it is actually subconscious. Yeah, but maybe what it's saying is that, uh, you know, it's in our mind, uh, the uh, ability to yeah. construct a sense of presence. And so we're yes. doing more of this uh, when there's fewer clues. Um, yes. But essentially, it's a, it's a sense that we're doing it all the time. Just yes. that because the environment feels natural, uh, we think it's a, you know, our, our interaction is only natural, but the mind is always constructing. And so this and it, is a, an, an instance where it's more visible that construction is happening. That's right. That's true. That's true. Absolutely. And the construct, and when we are, this, this is, you're using the, those theories of you know, the predictive brain, the, as in the brain yeah. the predictive organ that is constantly predicting based on uh, previous experience, we are bringing that to bear on, I mean, actually it's what enables us to have any kind of experience at all. So it's, it's all very, uh, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. So what we're dealing with really here is talking about how we can sort of try to not deconstruct, it's not a word I particularly like, but or unpack, but maybe unpack really the, all the various elements that make up who we are in order to then try to understand ourselves better. Because it's a shame in a way to think that you need to have extreme and terrible pathology to understand yourself. It'd be nice to just to be able to do this every day. <laughs> Right. I mean, this is an example of, uh, you know, there's a technical problem with the connection and we, we start to notice it. And, you know, I'm not, I was noticing as you were talking that you were moving your hands there, you're talking about deconstruct, not just quite deconstruct, unpack. And there's that notion of that dance of the hands so that the language itself, uh, you know, evokes more of that dancing with it and dancing and touching on the various aspects of the various facets of it. Um, yeah. as opposed to like necessarily deconstructing of taking one piece, putting it there, putting it there. But that, I think the, the movement conveyed a sense of interaction as yes. opposed to cutting and yes. putting apart. Yes, I also tend to move my hands a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish thing, the Italian thing, whatever, it's whatever you want it. It's just, I do, I notice that. Uh, but I think we, yes, I mean, we do need to talk. There's what dances, we need to, 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 to communicate with our bodies. We need to do that all the time. Um, I have a child that just entered the room, but okay. clearly he's not going to make noise. Um, uh, but yes, it's, and then there's distractions from the children who are real presences. Uh, and uh, <laughs> triggering all sorts of reactions in me since we're in this thing of deconstructing it in real time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so they're talk, talking about the many layers of embodied reality. It really is, yes. You know, so yeah. we're right, we're right in that, uh, you know, in some ways, this is what it's about. These are the many layers of embodied reality that's happening in real time. That's happening in real time. And you heard the door closing, so he actually closed the door, didn't make a sound. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a very very um, uh, wonderful way to, to to do this. I mean, if only more exchanges could be acknowledging the actual what what are you doing now? When you think of so many conferences about these things, and people are just sitting on their bums and not, you know, nobody's actually enacting it. Nobody's right. getting up and dancing. Yeah. <laughs> and you think maybe we should. 
much more, you know? Yeah. Uh, there might be a bit of this now, I'm off in a couple of days um, to Trieste, where I co-organized uh, at the CISA, which is one of the centers of studies in, in Trieste, with a neuroscientist there, a workshop on space. Because we're actually one of the things we're talking about, uh, an interdisciplinary workshop on space. There'll be, you know, neuroscientists, but also physics, but also painter, also a performer, a filmmaker who works on embodiment, um, neuropsychologist, a whole bunch of people will be meeting to talk precisely philosophy as well, to talk about that uh, and to actually do some workshops on this. So I'm actually quite, yeah, I know, okay, great, let's surprise us. We just, okay, let's just (laughs) do something fun and try to explore what our shared spaces are about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that's, uh, it's also what we're talking about here. Yeah, and yeah. To try to break the rules of the ordinary, the normal conversation. The, the, you know, at the same time, sometimes what else do we have? But conversation. Yeah, so, but yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the 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 it's very very interesting to see how even people who are writing phenomenology, a lot of them aren't writing about it. But you wonder, are they practicing it? Are they getting up in the morning to do the yoga or or, or you know? There's a lot of it's, it can become very philosophy can become so technical or or so abstract at some level and so verbal that I think it's easy to forget where these words come from because yeah. language is also embodied prof- profoundly. I mean, we, yeah, um, so. yeah, yeah. No, but I like when you you're talking about uh, practicing philosophy. Um, yes. You know, it, it's uh, uh, so it's kind of getting the loop back to that notion of predictive mind. And so the philosophy is a cognitive way of uh, making sense of the world in order to have a predictive tool. But, you know, how do we actually do that? And how do we, you know, separate that concept from the practice? Yeah, I think you can't. And I, I mean, there are theories about where philosophical insight comes from. You know, is it, is it, does it start with some kind of intuition? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think it does personally. In my, in, my, in, my, in my mind, in my life, it does. I think there are then political ideas that develop out of you know a whole bunch of you know, logical or or other uh, uh, practices or tools. Though so I think it does start with intuition. The question is, where is what is intuition and where does it mm-hmm, come from? Mm-hmm. And I think it is deeply embodied. I think many people recognize you know when you have the seed of a thought or of an idea, you feel it somewhere in your body. You, you feel it. Kind of crunching you don't quite know exactly how it works we don't really know how it works. yeah yeah, yeah we yeah. are starting to get ideas but we don't yet really understand i'm not sure we really need to but i was thinking also in relation to to uh, embodied practices even in, in, in psychotherapy often is it's words or silences but it would be good to have also more body work direct yeah. body work yeah but so you were starting to say about intuition and you say you don't know where it comes from you feel it you know something so essentially it's something about the phenomenon of an intuition arises and we're not quite in touch with what allows it to arise but just it's something that comes and it's not coming out of nowhere no but kind of a coming out of a black box yeah yeah and uh, we don't really know what that black, black box is. I mean, there are whole sorts of, you no, know, we're starting to know some elements. 
and yes, prediction is part of it for sure. Uh, so what's it like to you emotionally to think of it as, uh, uh, you know, ideas, thoughts coming out of that black box, you know, that's not quite there. As somebody who writes, as somebody who does poetry, as, you know, coming out with ideas, what's your connection with that black box? Or whatever else you might want to call it. Yeah, I don't like that you think of it as a black, black box. I think it's more of a... Uh, I actually think it's a, 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 a set of bodily processes. I mean, I think it's connection for, for sure connected to effective, to emotional states. Mm-hmm. Um, that then there's a kind of, you know, when you get to that moment of intuition, it's, it's not, or, or intuitive or thought. Uh, look, I think everyone experiences these things differently. In my case, I think it's... Um, you know, you call it often one calls it the aha moment, right? You have the sense yeah. of the, the, the complexities have built up at some level. Questions have been, in a sense, activated and maybe removed to the side. And then one of you is, oh, that was the idea I have just now is the answer to all those questions I've forgotten I had. Mm-hmm. I think there's that as a process. I think a lot of people have that. So mm-hmm. instead of the accumulation of questions, which are also inf- information, you know, they're also structures of information questions. I mean, and they accumulate and then there's a point where the, you, you shove them away and you have then that one answer that corresponds to what you were asking. So I think that may be one aspect of it. You're uh, talking about, uh, you know, there's a process where, you know, for a moment you're in the process of accumulating questions or banging your head against walls or something. uh, And then something, one of them, uh, something comes out of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think many people have that. It's a very common experience, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a a very wonderful one. How how do you relate, when you say wonderful, how do you relate to this moment, to this process? You know, um, uh, is it something that you experience as joy? Is it something you experience as pain and release? Or what's... uh, uh, For me, it's it's joy. I mean, the the most joyful thing for me is to be able to think. Yeah, yeah. So, Uh, so So even in the moments where you're banging your head against the wall, like you have questions that are unanswered, it is joy. Uh, because you you have that sense of it being in that larger process. Yes, I think it's nice to suddenly be aware of what problems there are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the worst is when you sort of. I think anxiety, by the way, as as a you know as a as a as a disturbance, which I, I'm a, I have quite a bit of it, and I think anxiety corresponds to not acknowledging what problems they actually really are. It's, it's an it's a it's a it's an inability or refusal to acknowledge to actually see exactly where where all the issues are. So whenever we're getting away from the actually embodied stuff, though, I think again, all these things are happening all the time with our whole bodies involved. So it's not as if it's not an abstract issue we're talking about. But still, we're yeah. talking now about thought processes and about the emotional aspects of thinking, which I think is very interesting. Uh, yeah, the psychology yeah, yeah. of the philosopher, the psychology of the scientist, that's all very, very, very interesting. And, and you know, psychology, the emotionality of thinking, you know, the mm-hmm. so all of these are related because it's embodied, so you can't make it's, different it's, structures. But what I'm hearing you say 
is that, uh, you know, there's some areas of life where uh, it's hard for you or for most of us anyway to be in, uh, in the not knowing or in the, uh, but in, uh, in the sense of intellectual curiosity um, uh, or artistic curiosity, uh, creativity, that's something that even the process of being in the not knowing and the uncertainty uh, is pleasurable for you. Yes. Because you're aware of it being the, as part of this creative process. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. I don't know if this sounds terribly neurotic or not. <laughs> oh, it sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. It sounds great. It sounds great. I mean, I, I, I certainly can identify with it. Yes. Yes, I think so, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Of course you can. Of course you can. I, I, I do think a lot of people can, and I, and I and I think it's a kind of state of grace. And I, I don't think I think many people, many of us, all of us, sometimes are so you know overwhelmed with logistics and worries and problems, or you know, concrete, you know, other other people's problems and so on, that you know, or or, or political <laughs> politics, that we we sort of you know forget in a sense. Sometimes it's very easy to. It's actually very easy to lose to lose that area where you can do that contemplation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also quite interesting phenomenon in itself because even distractibility is uh, in a sense also evolved. If we were indistractable, you know, we would be killed by some predator or something like that. I mean, these are evolved. Uh, 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 I don't know if distractibility is actually the emotion. I think it's not. I mean, being distracted in a sense is being your attention being drawn away from one thing to the other, from the outside world. You realize there's these boundaries between inner and outer that are shifting all the time. And again, the space of contemplation you're just talking about requires a kind of uh, peaceful, you know, like the water surface being very peaceful requires that boundary between in and out to be not perturbed and I think that's very often uh, it is perturbed so I think that because we are because we are porous because we've evolved to be with each other distracted by each other by dangers by pleasures by needs of others and so on and so forth and because we have all these complex societies that necessitate constant attention to logistics and what is your code? What is your passcode? What is it? All that has now made that even more distracting. So I think it's really hard for those reasons to find that place of stasis, which is why the sea remains still always the, the image of grace and peace, I think, for well, many yeah, people, yeah, 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 included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, uh, ideally would be great to develop the ability to tolerate more of the distraction of the disruptions um uh you know not just when the sea is calm but to be able to swim when there's more waves yes uh, yeah that requires uh i think that's learned where swimming mm -hmm. is learned uh requires stamina and practice yeah it's true to swim in the waves. It's a nice, very nice image. We all need to do that more and more, I think. Yeah. More and more exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. In the space. I think that that's something that a lot of people are experiencing. I mean, I feel very lucky and privileged in my circumstances, but and I think that's, it's also important to acknowledge one's own circumstance. See, okay, what is, where am I within those circumstances? Where, because we are embodied within the circumstance that determines so much of how we feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Therefore, what we can do, I think it's important always to be aware that 
not all circumstances yeah. are the same. Yeah. So, so, you know, I ask myself, you know, as we come toward the end of the, this, that, uh, you know, in a way of some kind of an impression of it, and I'm struck by how uh, many embodied metaphors came up. Um, uh, so that sense of uh, being, so the, the kind of, uh, we talked about ideas, but at the same time, uh, it felt like they corresponded to embodied metaphors. And so the, there was that notion of physicality of embodiment that was conveyed a little bit more than we try when we just use abstract words to, to convey that. And that would yeah. be one of my takeaways from this. I wonder if you just want to say anything more to this or uh, to, as, a, as an end to, uh, to this conversation. Well, um... Let's, I think when the heat wave, it's really nice to think about the sea and of course, just swimming in the sea <laughs> and nothing else as embodies as it gets, get back to the, to the, the mother of all mothers. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm lucky to live in a country where it's pretty easy to do that. Um, and um, I think that for everyone, and I don't know, I mean, for anyone who's, you know, trying to understand what they're made of. I think it's, yes, I think these embodied practices that we are, I think it's a very good thing. It's a very positive thing that they've developed so much and that more and more people are thinking along these lines. That actually makes me optimistic. Mm. I think it could maybe, I mean, it's one of the few things that makes me optimistic. There are not that many these days. And we really realize how much we need to think about ourselves as embedded in our environment, uh, embodied, you know, the four E. Uh, ideas uh, and these ideas are becoming more and more common because we realize we have destroyed so much of what enables us to live yeah including the sea and um, so I think it's a very good thing that we're finally realizing these things that the science is really helping us um, and that all these practices that we think I think all of us can can engage in it's there for everyone yeah. To actually try to become, you know, more peaceful, to be <laughs> more creative, more together. Who knows? I mean, what else can we wish for? Yeah, what else can we wish for? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Noga. Thank you very much. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.